Evening, everybody. Well, it's good to be back. I was uh, on vacation for a couple of weeks, so I didn't really go anywhere. I just didn't preach for three weeks. It felt strange. So it's fun to, to be back and getting to share with all of you. So Christmas time, Advent season, the birth of Jesus, family, decorating, joy, peace, receiving, giving, lights, red, green, visits, more visits, Christmas parties, late nights, long days, eating too much, anxiety over eating too much, decision fatigue, vacation time, no vacation time, too much vacation time, boxing day. It's a lot of feels, a lot of emotions that go into the season, isn't there? I want to read you a quote by a gentleman by the name of J.B. Phillips, and this is from this little book uh, Sarah and I got that are reading, and it has something each day to contemplate on for Advent. And he writes, By far the most important and significant event in the whole course of human history will be celebrated with or without understanding at the end of this season that we're entering into called Advent. The towering miracle of God's visit to this planet, which we live, will be glossed over, brushed aside, or rendered impotent by overfamiliarity. Even by the believer, the full weight of the event is not always appreciated. Their faith is in Jesus Christ. They believe with all their heart that this man who lived and died and rose again in Palestine was truly the Son of God. They may have, in addition, some working experience that the man Jesus is still alive and yet be largely unaware of the intense meaning of what they believe. Do they, for instance, as they daily tread the surface of this planet, reflect with confidence that my God has been here, here on this earth? Do they keep their faith wrapped in a napkin as a precious thing and apart? Or do they allow every discovery of the truth to enlarge their conception of the God behind this immensely complex universe? And do they then marvel and adore the infinite wisdom and power which so humbly descends to human stature? We rejoice in the fact that God has actually been here. And that is one half of the meaning of Advent. We're going to get to the second half in in a little bit later. But do you ever think about that? Just contemplate, there's a couple things there. First, that God himself did walk the same earth that we walk. It's amazing. But does it, does it ever bother you? I mean, if, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, then this doesn't really apply. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But, but for those of us who are a believer in Jesus, then the idea of not getting into the Christmas spirit, that can be troublesome. It can, it can be tough for us as we, as we think about that. I know it is for me. So uh, Pete and Cindy already read our passage, that, that beautiful passage in Luke chapter 1, the, the 
prophecy of John the Baptist's birth. So we've read that. So what I want to do now, though, is, is hopefully give us all something to think about as we start this season, this season of Advent. Don't hear me saying, though, that I'm going to try to tell you how to feel. This isn't about how you feel, but, but my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we can enter into this season, that we can enter into to any season, that we can enter into each and every day of our lives with a fresh and a tenacious understanding of who God is and where we fit into this great story that he is weaving through history. So our story today, it begins with a guy named Zechariah and a girl named Elizabeth. He's a priest. She's the daughter of a priest. And they are good people. They were good people. The text tells us they were righteous in the eyes of God, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. But, and, and this is a, a big but, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Why is this a big deal? Well, because people who weren't able to have kids at this point in history were thought of to be under some sort of punishment of God. That's what people thought. So I want to hit pause just right at this point because infertility isn't just an issue for a bygone era. It's something that is alive and well today. It exists in many, many different ways. It's painful. It's sad. It makes us wonder what God is doing or not doing. Sometimes there's a miracle and sometimes there isn't. See, the words that were written in the Bible for us by faithful people, inspired by God. They don't guarantee that every couple are going to bear a child. There's no guarantee. But what we do read does confirm a powerful promise that God is committed to redeem the sorrows in our lives through the death and the resurrection of his son. That there is hope. So for the Israelites, they as a people group had been waiting centuries for something. They'd been waiting centuries for God to speak to them again. And at the time of our story, there had been 400, roughly 400 years of silence. No prophet had risen up to convey any new word of God to them. They knew that they were waiting for Messiah, but they had no idea for how long they were going to be waiting for Messiah. Year after year, baby after baby, and nothing. And now Elizabeth believes that she has been taken out of the running to be the one who gets to bear the Messiah. Can you, can you imagine that? Have you ever thought about that? For centuries, each woman that came to child-bearing age would ask herself the same question. Am I the one? Am I the one that will get to carry the Messiah? Back to our story. One day, we have Zechariah, and he's serving God in the temple. And the text says that his order or his division was on duty that week. So that order or division, that was one of 24 groups of priests 
divided by families and structured after the, uh, how it talks about in First Chronicles, if you went back to the Old Testament in First Chronicles 23 and 24. So this meant that there is literally thousands and thousands of priests. So I've, I've read there could be as few as 8,000 and as many as 24,000. So there is boatload of priests. And twice daily, morning and afternoon, the priests burned incest. And this incest can... Incense. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along now. <laughs> all right, let's get it. Let's get it all over our system. Yeah. <laughs> incense. The priest burning incense, consisting of gum. Not the trident variety, just regular this other kind of gum resin. Anaika, galbanum, frankincense, and salt. But this is where it gets interesting. To the sheer number of priests, they could not all offer incense, even when their division was on duty. So as a result, the decision of who would offer incense was left to God by the use of lots. And so to draw lots, as I understand it, is basically like drawing straws. So Zechariah, he won. He got to go in and be the one to burn the incense. He actually would go in or did go in and he had a team of others uh, who also performed different duties. One would prepare the incense. Another one would scoop up ashes from the inner altar. Another one would clean up the ashes around the candlestick, etc., etc. There'd be a number of them that would do different things. This would actually happen so rarely that when it came time for these guys to go in, there was a, a little smaller team of coaches, priest coaches, these guys who'd been around who'd probably done it themselves before, but who were ready to help them remember how to do it because most of these guys had never actually done this before. This was a really, really big deal. And for Zechariah even, being chosen to offer the incense was even was such a rare uh, experience and that might actually only come a handful of times during a priest's life. I've read elsewhere that often it would only happen once in their entire life, that they would be able to come and offer this incense. This had been going on faithfully for centuries. But the priests weren't the only ones with a role to play. Luke tells us that while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside. They're praying together out loud, chanting, really. What were they saying? God of mercy... Come into your holy sanctuary and receive with pleasure the offering of your people. Over and over and over again. But while they're outside doing that, the rest of the priests are already finished doing their thing or they're waiting to do their thing. And Zechariah is by himself in the very center waiting to do his offering of the incense. When all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the incense altar. One Bible commentator writes, a holy heavenly creature appears to a holy priest who is standing in a holy place and performing a holy sacrifice. See, only a heavenly being would be able to go in there and not die. If it, was a, if it was a human person that had wandered in there, 
it, it wouldn't have ended well. Anyway, the angel appears and is standing not to Zechariah's right, but the angel standing to the incense's right, the altar of incense's right. See, the altar symbolizes God's presence and the right side is the place of authority and of adoration. When Jesus ascended, the text tells us that he was at what side? The right hand side. He ascended to the right hand side. So the angel being to the right means that he's got the juice. He's got, he's got the authority. He's, got, he's coming with God's authority and Zechariah knew it. And this is one of the reasons one of the many reasons that, I, that I, I, I believe this, that I think it's true, and that's Zechariah's reaction when this happens. See, most people in the Bible, when they encounter an angelic being, they freak out. Pretty much to a person, the, the initial reaction is fear. And it's not necessarily about unbelief as much as it is about experiencing something unusual and scary. Not expecting something is a powerful agent with fear. Now, I like to scare my wife as much as the next guy. It, it's very, very entertaining. <laughs> See, I'm already getting the little eyes. <laughs> it's very entertaining for me, mostly, mostly for me. She gets, a, she gets a jump out of it, but it's, it's more me. But it's interesting, though, when I scare her and I'm not even trying. When I, when I don't even, I'm not even doing anything. I just, I come home, say I come home early and I don't say, hey, I'm home loud enough or, or, or something like that. And then I'll be in a room and then she'll come walking in. And normally she would be so glad to see me, right? Oh, honey, I'm so glad. But, but she's not expecting me. And all of a sudden, all she knows is there's just some dude standing in the room. And so I get this really loud gasp and then maybe she'll run on the spot for a second as this is the terror, whatever. And then, and then the, the little, the little eyes, you guys got to see that the little eyes and the, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's been my house, man. Like, that's not a good reason. I, I, it's my fault, right? See, Zechariah wasn't expecting an angel to show up because nobody is expecting an angel to show up. It's, it's, it's not something that we expect to happen. It wasn't in the manual for him that it was, that was going to go on. So he was, he was scared, justifiably. But the angel says what the angel always says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. See the text, I, I, didn't, I didn't read about him praying for a child though, did you? It's not there. And so there are a couple things could be happening here. Uh, first, it could be generally speaking that the prayers of, of Zechariah and the people outside and who are praying for a Messiah, the angel saying, you're going to receive this, this boy who's going to be the forerunner about Jesus, the, the Messiah. So you've been given, your, your prayers have been answered. Israel, your prayers have been answered. Or this could be an answer to decades likely of prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been doing, hoping that they could have a little baby. It could be one or the other, but I, I, vote, I vote both. I think God's really good at multitasking. I think he can, he can accomplish it two in one. But the bottom line though, friends, for us as we read this is, is to know the prayer, prayers get answered. 
Prayer works. God does answer prayer. It's important for us to pray. And for those of you who love the meaning of names, John means God is gracious. God is gracious. And the fact that it was given by God, or in this case, his, his intermediary, the angel, the messenger, shows that this is a work of God, and this is an important work of God, that something incredible is going to happen through him, that the stamp of God's ministry in, on earth is going to be going straight through John. But the name God is gracious shows that the burden has not been, their burden has not been relieved by their goodness, but instead by God's graciousness. See, the promise that Elizabeth will have a son and name him John, this is the same promise that was given to then Sarai, but Sarah, Abram, Abraham's wife. Ver basically verbatim, save the name change. So the birth of Isaac fulfilled the long-awaited promise of God to start a new people group through Abraham. And now this promise of a baby to Elizabeth and Zechariah is going to be ushering in a new era through the man Jesus, who will then inherit his father, David's throne. But it is actually so much more. The angel tells him that he, Zechariah, he's going to have great joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at John's birth for he's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. But here's the key part because we, we really don't want to miss this. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And if you've read through the Bible before, you know it's a very, very short list of people that God talks about like that, that fills with the Spirit the sets apart. You think of people like Samson or Jeremiah, a very short list. And so you know that this baby, who will be a man, has a very, very important role. His role is like no other. And he's enabled, it is enabled and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Luke, our writer, identifies the Spirit as the one directing everything in the story surrounding the saving work of God in the story and the coming of Jesus Christ. But it's easy to miss this in the familiarity of this season, isn't it? Whenever we read anything in the Bible, we want to ask this question, why, why is this in here? What does this teach us about the great story? What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about ourselves? See, Jesus, later on, he's going to say that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. There's none greater than John, Jesus says. Why? Because the other prophets prepared the people for a Messiah that was going to be coming way, way in the future. But John gets to be the one to announce the coming of the Messiah who is going to be happening and coming imminently. And not only that, he gets to actually announce that the Messiah has come. Behold, the Lamb of God. No other prophet was given that honor. So that's why this is in here. A big-time prophet like this needs a big-time origin story. Something like this hadn't happened in like 1,500 years. It's amazing. John was big-time. And the angel said that he's going to turn many Israelites to the Lord, their God. He's going to be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He's, it's not Elijah reincarnated. Elijah didn't even die. He's going to be a 
uh, prophet in the mode of Elijah. He's going to have the same or similar role. And this will be a part of fulfilling the prophecy laid out. If we were to go back into the very end of the Old Testament, the prophecy in Malachi, that Elijah, that office is going to oversee the coming of the Messiah. And also, by the way, was the last time that Israel heard from a prophet. So he, John, he's going to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. Where divisions are at their deepest, where families are broken, he is going to bring healing. He's going to bring reconciliation. He's going to transform strong-willed rebels. John, mission, his mission is not going to stop with individual change, but it's going to impact the formation of an entire new society. But Zechariah doesn't believe it. I'm too old, he says. So is my wife. Have you seen her? Old. We're all too old. First of all, dude, you're a priest. Right? You, you, you've read the story. You know about the, the Abram and Sarai and, and the whole laughing the last time they heard about it. Zechariah, you know that story. And second, duh, that's why it's a miracle. Right? Of course, like, this isn't supposed to happen. This is what God does. He, he comes where people have expectations and he does the unexpected. I really love how Gabriel responds. The angel, it's, it's Gabriel. He's like, his response, uh, I'm, I'm Gabriel. I'm kind of a big deal, right? If, <laughs> do you not know who I am, right? You don't know who I work for. You don't know who I represent. Who do you think sent me here? I'm here to give you the good news, but because you're not on board, I'm taking your ability to speak. So the one that's being given the first inkling of what is going to be happening, who's been given the good news first, is going to be unable to actually speak about it. And while all this is going on, while these guys are having their interaction, the people are still standing outside in the courtyard. They're waiting. They're wondering. You can imagine in the crowd, perhaps whispers are starting to pulse through. Because this was very, very unusual. Like the offering and the incense only normally took just a very, very short time. The priest would go in, offer it, he'd prostrate himself, and then he'd leave. Take a very, very short time. So even just a little interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel would be fantastically unusual. And it's not like they'd be sitting there thinking like, oh man, is there, is there Bic out of fluid or something like that? They, they would start to wonder about what's happening. But why are they even waiting? Well, they're waiting because Zechariah, as part of his duty, he needs to come out and he's supposed to pronounce a blessing over the priests and over the crowd. And the same blessing we find in Numbers 6, it's that beautiful priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and give you peace. That's the blessing that he was supposed to give. So they're waiting for him to come and do that. But when he emerged, you're going to want to turn it all the way, yeah. Uh, but when he emerged, he was unable to speak. So he made signs to them. He's probably pointing to the temple. He's pointing to the heavens, maybe pointing to his mouth. 
trying to give them some sort of indication what was happening, what was going on. Somehow he was able to give them, or he was able to come across the concept that he'd seen a vision in the temple, that something unbelievable had just happened to him while he was in there. Something miraculous, something unexpected had happened to him. So the story for today ends then with Zechariah. He finishes his shift. It would take a week. And then he heads home. Elizabeth wasn't already pregnant. She would become pregnant. Can you imagine the expectancy there as they're waiting for that pregnancy test? Will this come true? Is Gabriel telling the truth? And then off she went for five months. Perhaps to wait until she was showing before announcing to the world. Because nobody would believe her. This scene then began the advent before Advent. So remember when I said when we get to the, the second part of the importance of Advent? Well, the first half, half of Advent is that we rejoice in the fact that God has actually been here. We, we enter into this time of waiting just as the world waited for Messiah. And then we celebrate the birth. But then there's this other half. Again, J.B. Phillips, the 11, so those who had gone with Jesus minus Judas, who had six weeks as experience of the risen Christ, were told after he had finally left their sight that this same Jesus shall so, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. Jesus is coming back. All will be made right. So we wait. Just like Zechariah and many thousands of priests before him, we wait. Just like Elizabeth and many women hoping for a miracle before her, we wait. We're not always good at waiting, are we? Henry Nouwen uh, writes, waiting is not a very popular attitude. Waiting is not something that people think about with great sympathy. In fact, most people consider waiting a waste of time. Perhaps this is because the culture in which we live is basically saying, get going, do something, show you're able to make a difference. Don't just sit there and wait. For many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. And people do not like such a place. They want to get out of it by doing something. It impresses me, therefore, that all the figures who appear on the first pages of Luke's gospel are waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth are waiting. Mary is waiting. Simeon and Anna, who were there at the temple when Jesus was brought in, are waiting. The whole opening scene of the good news is filled with waiting people. And right at the beginning, all those people in some way or another hear the words, do not be afraid. I have something good to say to you. These words set the tone and the context. Now Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, and Anna are waiting for something new and good to happen to them. But what is the nature of waiting? What is the practice of waiting? How are they waiting and how are we called to wait with them? Waiting, as we see in the, in, in the people on the first pages of the gospel, is waiting with a sense of promise. Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is to bear you a son. Mary, 
Listen, you are to conceive and bear a son. People who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They have received something that is at work in them, like a seed that has started to grow. And this is very important. We can only really wait if what we are waiting for has already begun in us. So waiting is never a movement from, some, from nothing to something. It is always a movement from something to something more. See, we've all been given a promise. That Jesus is returning. And in that waiting, it's an active waiting as we nourish that promise that's been given to us. As we take that promise and we start to move forward and to share that promise with others. So we wait. But we wait with activity. So from today's text, we know that God was not finished with them. Their waiting was not in vain, that a miracle came. But before them, or before celebrating publicly, Elizabeth went into seclusion for five months. She rejoices that God has been gracious to her. This foreshadows the greater grace still to come, doesn't it? The grace and the coming of Jesus, that which we wait for now. See, Elizabeth was hidden away, but in the sixth month, she will have a visitor. The tale doesn't end for us yet, but that's a story for another day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time of year that even in all of its familiarity can still bring awe and wonder to us as we think about what went into all that you did to bless us with your son, Jesus. Lord, we want to thank you for all of the people that were faithful. When we think of Zechariah and Elizabeth and then their boy John, Mary and Joseph, and all the people that were anxiously awaiting, that were waiting, not wondering if you would come, but knowing that you would come. And when the call came, even if they stumbled a bit like Zechariah did, ultimately were faithful. Faithful to your call to them, your inclusion of them in this great mystery, but wonderful plan to save us all. And so Lord, as we embark on Advent now, we ask that you please bless us. Bless us with a sense of wonder. Bless us with a sense of awe. Bless us with a sense of excitement. And through that, as we rejoice thinking about the fact that your son Jesus came, we will be empowered to walk in faith that he will come again. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We pray in your name. Amen.